Okay, I have something for you this morning. It's called Eureka. Eureka, I have found it. Eureka, the famous word, word of Archimedes as he was getting into his bathtub, watching the water level rise and realized he could do something with measuring metal, the weights of metals, and he got so excited he jumped out, Eureka, and ran through the town, but he forgot his towel, and it made all the papers, but it's bigger than that. Eureka, I have found it. That's kind of a translation of what that is, and I, we are going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to start with Joe Side. Here's what I'm going to do. Let me give you a little uh, so I don't throw anybody off here. Uh, I'm gonna, we're going to go talk a little bit about King Josiah, read a few verses there. Then I'm going to switch gears, go to the Old West, talk about a little Old West timeline. And then we're going to tell a story about a guy named Frank Leach. I'm not talking about Brian. He is Frank, but that's not his name. Frank Leach, and then we're going to kind of wrap it up. So hope that's enough information. Here we go. Josiah. So King Josiah, king of Judah, came to the throne at age eight. So there's a lot in that. Um, his great-grandfather was Hezekiah. I know you've heard that name. A lot of things happened in Hezekiah's rule there of Judah. But here's the thing, Josiah is eight years old. The reason he's king is his father is gone. His grandfather's gone. His great-grandfather's gone. He's eight-year-old, and now he's a king. So um, you can imagine he's coming in there. He's finding his identity. You know, thankfully, there's some good voices around him. Apparently, because at 16, he began to seek God. This is good. At 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of idol worship in the high places. At 26, he began to purify the land and the temple. Part of this was a project to repair the temple. And uh, so that kind of began, and we're going to look at 2 Chronicles 35, excuse me, 3415, where... Hilkiah is the high priest, and Josiah's saying, okay, we're going to make the repairs. Money's been collected there at the temple. We're going to use it for the repairs. So he sends uh, his secretary, uh, the person who's over all of this work, Shaphan, to tell Hilkiah what's going on. So Hilkiah's in there doing, doing his stuff, and in 2 Chronicles 34.15, I don't know what I said before, but it's 2 Chronicles 34.15, um, Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Like, where had it been? They hadn't seen it. It hadn't been around. And um, so he gave it to Shaphan. Shaphan took it to Josiah. Josiah has it read, and it moves him, okay? He is moved. So we go to 2 Chronicles 34, 33. Josiah 
removed all the detestable idols from the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God as long as he lived. They did not fail to follow the Lord. And uh, so, and it goes right into Passover. This is really an important part, I think, of this whole thing. Second uh, Chronicles 35.1, Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. Second Chronicles 35.18, the Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. Okay, that's way at the beginning before the kings. As a matter of fact, it says none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah. This is a big deal. Here is a boy that is probably, his identity isn't set. It took him a while to get there, but he was, he was surrounded by good people. He found something very important that moved him into a new space where he found his identity. He and he rolled into a destiny that definitely, now he was around the last uh, king of Israel, not the last, but, but pretty close. So, oh, wow, Josiah, this is a big um, thing. But you know what? I'm gonna switch gears. And uh, we're gonna go back in time a little bit. And I've gotta, I've gotta sing a song to do this because it takes that for me to transition properly. It's a little too abusive to my system if I don't at least sing myself into it. So here, make sure I got the words right. Okay. In a cavern, in a canyon, excavating for a mine, dwelt a miner, 49er, and his daughter, Clementine. Do you know the words? Oh, my darling, oh, my darling, oh, my darling, Clementine. You are lost and gone forever. Dreadful sorry, Clementine. Lights. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, you did it. All right. Very good. You know the words. This is a song. Now, here's the thing. This is uh, really a uh, scathing satirical commentary on the prospectors of 1849. Really, it was kind of, it was written in 1884, so it was long after that. But there was a lure of gold, the California gold rush. That's where we're headed with this. And the mother load. Here's how it unfolded, friends. Sutter's Mill, January of 1848. John Sutter. You know who that is. I mean, he's associated with Lidditz, right? He's got a place out there that you can go to. His final resting place is out there. But he, at this time, in 1848, he wanted to build an agricultural empire in this part of California. So he's there, hires a guy to uh, build a mill for him, James Marshall. James Marshall's building the mill, working hard. And what does he find? A nugget of gold, about half the size of a pea. He goes, okay, hey, John, we've, I found this gold. John Sutter's like, oh no! my agricultural empire is doomed. Because it is. He knows there's going to be people rolling in there. This isn't the first gold rush. There have been others. This is the first one that kind of 
is like a worldwide scale, but he's like, okay, don't tell anybody. Do not tell anybody about the gold. Here's what we're doing. First of all, let's find out what's real gold. They did that. It was real. Thank you, Archimedes. And then what they did was they got one of the other guys out there. I'm not going to say his name because he really messed everything up for John Sutter. So I'm not going to name him. But they said, you take this information. We're keeping the nugget. You take the information. We need mineral rights here because I don't want a bunch of people camping in here and staking claims in my agricultural empire. So off he goes. Now, this time for about a year, this is under uh, U.S. military rule now. A lot of different things were happening. Actually, we're probably right there at the Mexican-American War. So here he goes. This guy's going on his way, stops for a little beverage, gets to talking. This guy's like, well, you know, uh, we discovered coal right over there in the mountains. Coal, you rube. We discovered gold. Hot. And he's on his way, of course, leaves. What? This guy's from Sutter's Mill. And he goes again. He's like, oh, I'm almost there, but how about another stop? And they're bragging about something they're doing with trees or something. He said, oh, oh yeah, there's money in that, but what if you found gold like we did? And he's on his way, just letting the cat out of the bag everywhere he goes. And then he gets to the colonel, needs agricultural rights. The colonel's in a war now. It's not happening right there, but it's like the U.S. is at war. This is a war. I'm not giving you mineral rights. You don't get mineral rights. But we found gold. So now he's told an envoy of the United States government that there's gold out there where the U.S. is planted militarily. So by August of that year, the New York Herald is saying, gold is discovered on the East Coast. And even the President of the United States by December is saying, well, you know, I can verify that indeed there is gold. So 1848 was still kind of quiet. About 6,000 people rolled into California area, and they did okay, actually. Um, they, most of those miners, when they would go out, because it was easily accessible, they could get thousands of dollars a day, some of them. Even the, the most average miner out there with his pan, Plaster mining off. Can you imagine? I want to be rich. rich, man, beyond my dreams. Even they could make 10 to 15 times what like an, uh, a laborer would make in a day out east. So, um, but that was only for a short while. That only lasted for 1848 because uh, those were the 48ers. They did okay. But the 49ers got wind of it. We're going to California. Yeah, and so 90,000 people poured into California area in uh, 1849, and about half by land, half by sea. 1848, only about 500 came over land, but this was 90,000. They weren't all Americans, 50,000, 60,000 were Americans. And uh, by 1855, it's estimated that 300,000 gold seekers entered that area. Also by 1855, 
um, because of the way things were going, you really couldn't make a profit with your pan or even your sluice box and your rocker or your long tom. You couldn't really make it. You needed large groups of people either working in partnership or as employees. I mean, that's the only way it would work. So a lot happened in there that changed things. And San Francisco was a boom town by the time this came to a, it started out with 200 full-time residents in 1846. 200 full, is there even a town in Pennsylvania that only has 200 people in it? There is? Okay, I don't know, I've never heard of it. You go through it so fast, I can't tell, I go from one town to another very quickly. But by 1840, uh, by 1852, 36,000 full-time residents, and of course, just people pouring in like crazy. So that moved into the Comstock Lode, which was Nevada. So all of this gold and silver was just moving through the port of San Francisco. So what this did was it said, you know what? California needs to be a state. Let's rush this thing into statehood in 1850. They did it. It's like, yeah, but, um, you know, we'll have to make a lot of compromises to do it. Make the compromise. Make it a great compromise. And it was. The great compromise happened, and bam, they were a state as fast probably as any other state became a state because the gold. I mean, all of that, it was the gold standard then. Every bit of that that would, they'd bring to the assay office would potentially end up as U.S. property. So a mint had to be opened in San Francisco in 1854, and it did okay, but once again, it's pouring through there. So by 1874, they built a second mint and um, designed by Alfred Mullet of hair fame. Is that what you said? <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. That's very good. I don't know if that's accurate, but that was good. So uh, Alfred Mullet designed this. There had already been earthquakes. They knew it needed to be a, a strong building to withstand earthquakes. Not to mention, we're keeping all of our gold in there. This place could hold $300 million worth of gold bullion, gold coin. And it was really a factory. It wasn't just like a bunch of safe deposit boxes in there because they're smelting down gold. I mean, it's like a, it's like a real working, plus there's, there, and a lot of it's coming in in a form of ore, you know, so they're grinding, so they've got equipment there, they've got people, I mean, working there, and, and it's a lot of money is held there. So it turns out that this, at the time, is probably the strongest building in the United States of America, or uh, that, that was what was figured anyway. I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know, but you'd want it to be. I think it was, they called it the Fort Knox of the West or something like that. But there now, Frank Leach is coming into the picture. Frank was nowhere around in 1874, but by 1906, Frank Leach was running the mint and man, he ran a tight ship down there. And the morning of 1906, about 5:12 the morning, not the morning, about April 18th, 
<laughs> As 1906 dawned on the single day that it was in existence, April 18th, the day, 5.12 a.m., uh, earthquake. Uh, there, there were actually a couple of uh, earthquake tremors, I'll call them, came through, but they were huge. They were estimated between 7.7 .7 and 8.2 on the Richter scale, which did not exist, so they had to kind of go, okay, here's the Richter scale. Okay, now, what were they doing? Okay, yeah, 7.7 to 8.2. Okay, so it was a guess. Most people say 7.9, so that's good, whatever. It was horrible. I mean, it broke. It, all of these buildings were falling apart, and that was not the worst part of the whole thing. Fires broke out because somebody was going, wow, that was a rough morning with those tremors, wasn't it? Yeah, I'm hungry. Okay, I'll make breakfast on this broken uh, stove here. I'm sure it'll be okay. I wouldn't worry about anything. Woof. Fire breaks out there, here, over there, every place. And before you know it, there's fires all over San Francisco, and they're growing into a single fire. Now, this isn't a problem for the fire department. They've experienced, the San Francisco Fire Department has experienced year after year of fires burning the city down. They know how to handle it. Get the pumpers, boys. And they drag the carts out. Okay, let's get pumping. Pumping! The problem is part of the infrastructure is destroyed because of this earthquake. Now, benefit is, okay, that they built these cisterns in the streets. There's the gigantic 10,000, and some of them up to 100,000, and they've, they've only got 24 at the time. They still use them, there's a lot more now, but basically it's a gigantic tank covered by the road, little manhole in the middle. You take the manhole off, there's a straw that goes all the way to the bottom. You hook your pumper to the straw, <laughs> come on, and it pumps out. Also, you could use it, because it is fresh water, you can use it to run the steam pumps that would pump water from the bay, you know, but, but now some of the water that they had coming through pipes was not available because the pipes were broken. So they used every drop of the water in those cisterns available. The fire was raging. That fire raged for three days in San Francisco. The earthquake lasted a minute and did a whole lot of damage, but three days San Francisco got burnt out. And there's the mint. 50 guys got up that morning and went to work. The morning of an earthquake and the worst fire that, and that San Francisco had seen a lot of them, but the worst fire they'd seen in a while, ever, maybe, these guys, they went to work. These guys worked at the mint. Maybe some of them were on site, I don't know, but they went to work faithful in the middle of this thing. They got there. Frank Leach was leader. Frank didn't call them in. Hey, guys, my cell still works. Come into the mint. He couldn't. There was no way to communicate. He lived in Oakland. There was a wire service that still worked from Oakland, but no communication to just, can you guys, who can remember when you didn't have that kind of easy communication? I mean, it just shortly, not too long ago, it was hard to kind of, if you were out without your phone, 
without a phone, away from a phone, it was hard to get in touch with people. So, but they showed up. And there's the mint, strongest building in the States. And the, okay, the earthquake, everything's fine. Nothing's broken off because of the earthquake. Nothing is damaged. So they go in and, oh, this is unbelievable. Two weeks prior to this event, two weeks prior, two weeks, they finished building a cistern in the basement of the mint. Not just a cistern full of water, a cistern fed by an artesian spring. They had an innumerable, <laughs> they had an, a never-ending source of water there. And they had pumping equipment because these guys worked and they had equipment to work with. But they only had one hose. So what are you gonna do? You go to the roof and start hosing that thing down. They went up to the roof. Some of them had to stay on different levels and they got buckets and they just started. Because it was hot. The fire was raging. It was so hot. Now some of the, because there's gold in there probably, some of the lower windows had these iron shutters on them. So it didn't protect from the heat, but it did protect to a certain extent as far as kind of firewalls. But the upper levels, like the, the third floor, didn't have these iron shutters on them. And at a certain point when the, the fire is coming by the um, uh, mint and it's so hot that the sandstone facing the, put on parts of this granite building are popping like popping and it sounds like artillery fire as this piece of thing are popping off. So these guys are inside. Now they think they're getting fired upon in the middle of a raging fire. It's overwhelming heat and they're watering down the roof trying to keep the fire at bay because the roof can still burn. You know what happened to the glass in the third floor? It melted. It didn't break. It didn't crack. It liquefied right there. Hot, molten glass pouring onto wood floors. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think you guess right. It starts a fire and they just, we need the hose on floor three. And they brought it down. Frank is leading this whole thing. And they're watering it down. In the meantime, on the roof, a wind has picked up. The wind is blowing. And these red hot fiery balls, I'm going to call them cinders, but you know, if it's on fire and it's orange and floating through the air and coming at you, cinder isn't a strong enough word. I need like fireball. There's fireballs floating through the air, landing on the roof, and, but they are light. And it starts, because of the wind, it starts drifting like snow. You have these cinder blazing fireball drifts going into the corners about like two feet high. We need the hose, Frank. There, it's, fires are breaking out. Can't send it yet. They're hosing down. Finally, they get the molten glass issue under control. Hose goes up. They're able to put the fire out on the roof, and the fire moves on. This didn't take three days for them to get through it, but for the way the fire went by, it was intense for those moments, for certain. So here's the thing. The faithfulness 
of 50 plus men. I'm, I'm kind of, I wanna make this personal to us. So there's a lot that went into building this mint and making arrangements for this cistern to be built, but I wanna say it in a way that personalizes it a little bit. The faithfulness of 50 plus men in recognizing value, making a place for it, and protecting it made that value. I forgot to tell you the end of the story. In the mint at that time, there was $200 million worth of that time frame's value. Gold bullion, they had just run the seasons, whatever that is, coining. So it was in coin form, it was in bullion form. There wasn't a bunch of ore around, it was, they did the work already. $200 million, it could hold $300 million. The two weeks following that event, all the other, all the banks in San Francisco had lost access to the coin that they had because the heat from this raging inferno coming through and not to mention the earthquake pouring stone and rubble over these devices meant to hold and keep coins secure. It certainly did, but so secure that they couldn't get at it. So people couldn't access their money. Now, you would think in a cataclysmic event like that that the uh, death toll would be innumerable. Well, it, there was a death toll the, at that time, and also there were 400,000 people living in San Francisco at that time. But the death toll, because of the way it happened, the earthquake happened, people got out, the fire started, so there wasn't as much trapping of a situation where there might be in other cases. But there, were, there was a lot of loss of life. But there were a lot of people recovering. And certainly there were banks in the surrounding area, but all the banks in San Francisco were inaccessible. So Frank Leach made a plan. He said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. I've got wire service in uh, Oakland, which is where he lived. I read this, he, he wrote it the whole day out, even what he had for breakfast in like his report that he submitted to the United States government. I guess that's what you do. What'd you have for breakfast? Okay. Um, so he, at that point, he said, we, we can access this wire service. We can wire uh, to the mints on the East Coast. If family members need to send money, we can get the information and the mint can guarantee it and then we can give notes to people to come and collect their coin and survive. And they also had situations with banks. So over two weeks, they distributed from the U.S. Mint. Not to mention the fact that it became a place where people, where there was no rubble because it was such a, a strong building. And they, people could camp out there. They could get um, services there like uh, medical services and things like that. But they distributed $40 million to the people of San Francisco. 
so that they could now, I mean, that, I mean, if you looked at the whole population, that amounts to about $100 a person, not that every individual came up. It wasn't a distribution check from the government. That's not what it was. It was money that they had available or family had available and were sending to them. But in those two weeks, it was critical. It was critical for them to eat, <laughs> for them to repair their persons, and to move forward in repairing their lives. So these 50-plus men, in recognizing the value, in making a place for it and protecting it, made that value available to sustain a population through a disaster. So King Josiah, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna hop back to King Josiah now. King Josiah discovered his identity and moved into destiny when he found the book of the law which had been protected because someone valued it and made a place for it. When all the other ridiculous things that were happening in that place were happening, somebody made sure that that was protected. And it changed, uh, it helped move him into a bigger destiny even that he was currently walking. So I have, I feel like this is what we do. We recognize value we make a place for it, and we protect it. The value of heaven walks up to us and says, hi, how are you doing? My name is, or they might say, why'd you cut me off in traffic? I don't know how they're gonna greet you. It could be any of those things. But still, the value of heaven moves on two feet all around us. And then it's the faithful people doing faithful things like these 50 guys plus day in and day out showing up that recognize that value, make a place for it and protect it. How is it protected? First Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. How's that? Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to lives worthy of God. This is how we operate in this faithfulness, recognize value, make a place for it, and protect it. And that part of that is, the protecting part comes out in encouragement, comfort, and urging. So I want everyone to stand up. We're going to make an altar right now. I don't know what... I'm going to say it again. You are the faithful one who recognizes value, makes a place for it, and protects it. Certainly this is the purview of a father, but it's really all of us that are doing this. So we're going to make an altar today. We're going to build an altar right in front of you.
Um, so, so I'm going to pray. I want, I want, watch this video I'm going to have on the right here, and we're going to talk about it. So this is 1906. Thank you, Thomas Edison, uh, for and your team for gathering this. This is the destruction after the earthquake, after the fire. And as we round this corner, we're going to see something uh, different than rubble and destruction. And that is um, the U.S. Mint with a flag waving over the top of it. There's life there. This is you. That's you. Whatever rubble is surrounding you right now, that's you. You've got a banner of love over your life. You've got a cistern fed by God, living water overflowing, running out of you. That's you. The world around you could look like whatever. That's you. And now you are looking out, recognizing value. So let's put it on the altar. Some of you might be, Father, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for, for it's you. <laughs> You've built this into us. We are your representatives. So I, I, look, if you're, I, I know the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, everyone in here. What's he saying? I don't know. He might be saying, he might be pointing out, this is how you've done it. This is how you have recognized value. This is how you've made a place for it. This is how you've spoken into life, lives, the protecting words of a father. He might be doing that. You might just be hearing a voice uh, coming out of your soul saying, I missed it. I haven't recognized value. I haven't done any of that. I've just messed everything up. That, I want to tell you something. You see that altar in front? Can you see the altar in front of you? It's there. And the fire of the Holy Spirit is burning on it right now. And every, this word was given to me this morning. Every bit of shame that you may feel around what did I do right? Like Ben was talking about earlier, what did I do wrong? I did some mistakes. Every bit of shame is evaporating on that fire in front of you right now in Jesus' name. You mark it, Father's Day 2022. That altar, it's built in front of you. The shame is evaporating. You are recognizing value. You are making a place for it and you are protecting it. Who are you doing it for? Oh, it's not for you. It's not for you. It's for those that come after. When the 300,000 people searching for identity and a value system that they haven't had in years, they need someone to recognize the value of heaven inside them around them. They need someone to make a place for them. It's happened before. It's happening again. You are that. You are that. So Father, thank you for the altars here today. Thank you for evaporating shame. Thank you, God, that you are pointing out to us 
the steps in recognizing, the steps in making a place, the steps in protecting God so that we faithfully continue to move into that space you built for us. In Jesus' name, thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. So here's what you're gonna do. Uh, it, it's time uh, to, to, to say goodbye. <laughs> but you know what? You're at an altar. So if you're not done there, I mean, come up here. And I, I'm gonna ask the ministry team to come up too. Some, uh, we, we may need more time. We may need someone to speak those encouraging and comforting words and, and speak into our lives. So if you want to move into this space for a time, please do so. It's open. I am releasing people to move forward into the rest of Father's Day. But don't, the altar is there. The altar's there. Father's Day 2022. Thank you, Father. So bless everyone here. I bless you. For fathers, I bless you. You are carrying something that is special. It can't just be, ah, this isn't real. I'm going to put it over here on this. It's yours. You're carrying it. God put it in you. Your words matter. Your life is important to the people around you. So I bless you. I bless everything you say. I bless everything that comes out of your mouth because in it, even if you don't get every word right, there's life in it. There's life for sons and daughters in Jesus name. So bless you. Have a great day. Barbecue something or have someone barbecue it for you. Amen.